This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. A lot of us woke up on January 1st with a bad hangover. I refer, of course, not to a hangover caused by the excessive consumption of alcohol, but to something entirely different. There's no question about it. Wall Street got drunk. He got drunk and now he's got a hangover. Ah, yes. The financial crisis. Like a hangover, it's made many of us feel nauseated, shaky, and irritable. But there's something else going on, too. Something that, if it came with your hangover, you would never drink again. This sense that awesomely powerful forces that we don't entirely understand and we definitely don't remember inviting into the house have been messing with our lives with total impunity, and we can't do much about it. Today on the show, we are not going to talk about the current financial crisis. We'll take a short break from that. We are going to talk, however, about another moment in world financial history, one that can certainly be seen as a precursor to what's going on today. In late November 1999, the World Trade Organization's ministerial conference was to take place in Seattle, Washington. At the same time, an enormous number of protesters were gathering and setting up camp in and around the city. The protesters were a loose coalition of pretty diverse groups, unions, environmentalists, students, church groups, anarchists, and others. But what they had in common was that, for one reason or another, they very much objected to the WTO's mission to liberalize international trade and ease regulations that could hurt it. What began as a peaceful, if uh, spirited, protest escalated into something else. Whether it was a riot, a case of extreme police overreaction, or both, wasn't clear. But over the next few days, more than 600 people were arrested, and police used tear gas, pepper spray, and physical force to control and disperse the crowd, a crowd that was conservatively estimated at between 25 and 40,000 people. Now, the WTO protests might look like a little bit of history from a more innocent time, pre-September 11th, pre-Gore v. Bush, pre-Iraq, and of course pre-Credit Crunch. But in fact, the issues that the WTO and the protesters were dealing with are not only familiar today, but are also intimately connected with what's going on now. Here to explain how that works today on the show is sociologist Heather Gottney. Gottney's an assistant professor at Fordham, and she is currently finishing up a book about the social movements that coalesced around the WTO protests. We spoke in our studios about what happened then, what led up to it, and why we should care about it today. Heather Gottney, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So it's November 1999, the WTO conference in Seattle. What happened? Basically what happened was you know, there were, I, I believe it was in the, about 25,000 protesters that converged on the city from around the world, really, but mostly West Coast people. And there were marches all around the city. And basically what happens is that there's a lot of kind of makeshift housing set up and protesters come from out of state and they stay in schools and you know union halls or wherever they can find a place to stay sometimes they camp and they show up every day and so you know normally you know there'd be a, a day of protest but this becomes you know something it, it's expected that protesters will attend from the beginning of the meeting until the end and typically these meetings go on for about 3 days and so there is this sort of convergence on the city, and the protesters really take over a city. So it's not something that's just isolated for a couple of hours and then everyone goes home. It's a, it's a greater commitment, and, of course, there are these different levels of action that people can choose. And then their anarchist groups tend to stay away from the more centralized protest and do 
kind of what you could call more guerrilla kind of activity. You know, some of that is vandalism. Um, some of it is doing little things to disrupt the city, putting things in the middle of the street, you know, things to kind of draw people outside of their everyday movements and uh, recognize that something's going on in their city that shouldn't be going on, which was, you know, the, the, the meeting of the WTO. The police, though, seem to feel that the thing that shouldn't be going on was the protests and the policing of this event was pretty notable. Tell me about that. You know, depending on your point of view, and I'll present, you know, the activist point of view, the policing was, was there was over-policing. Um, there's been visual documentation of protesters sitting down in the street and police tear-gassing people who were clearly engaging in peaceful protests and uh, using rubber bullets, using tear gas and in, you know, point blank range and, you know, a lower level of brutality. And so the mayor had declared a state of emergency, which, of course, gives police a great deal of um, authority and a broader range of tactics. And, uh, you know, luckily nobody was hurt. I mean, it's just something we're going to see down the line. Um, but it was really one of the first big protests where where these activists and the issue of the WTO was on mainstream television especially in the United States and and the police wanted to make, to shut that down as quickly as possible for obvious reasons and uh, wanted to make sure that 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 kind of thing didn't happen again now i would say you know from another perspective the city you know was was vandalized there was a great deal of damage there's a lot of damage done just you know with the sheer numbers of people that showed up and then of course you know, there was purposeful property damage. And so in some ways, you know, it presented a great conundrum for the police because they hadn't encountered this kind of thing before. And the people of Seattle, of course, did not want their city torn apart. This seemed to, at least I remember watching it, and it just seemed to completely come out of absolutely nowhere and go on for days and days and days. And both the protests and the response seemed really unprecedented. Was that true? I'm assuming this didn't actually come out of nowhere. And it didn't, right? So there was um, there was a group called the People's Global Action, um, and it's an international network. And they, alongside with a more local group called the Direct Action Network, which was a specifically U.S.-born organization and had concentrated groups in um, New York, here in New York, and in um, in San Francisco. And so these groups had been getting to know each other. Obviously, the trade unions that were there, had been, you know, had, had previously organized and decided that they'd be interested in this um, because of the labor issues involved in the trade orga- World Trade Organization. The environmental groups had been well organized. So there were well organized factions. What was interesting about Seattle is that they all decided that the WTO in some kind of way affected them. And so they came together, right? So instead of just having trade unionists deal with trade union issues or bargaining or whatever, you know, environmentalists climbing trees and, you know, trying to stop bulldozers, they're all coming, right, to this because they see this as an issue that affects them all. I think the reason why it seemed so spontaneous was because it was just the first time. Let me ask you for some background. What was going on with the WTO and what was going on with the protesters? Why were they against it? Well, I could say, I would say this, um, the WTO was founded in 1995, so it wasn't that old 
by the time the, the protest had been organized in Seattle. Like I said, there were anti-IMF protests, but the WTO itself presented a new set of problems, and those problems, I would say, um, you know, part of the reason why these people came together, because they recognized that these problems might affect people in particular locales, but they were similar problems. I like to use the example of what happened in the case of Jamaica. Basically, what was happening in the 1990s was that the Jamaican um, Jamaican farming was falling apart because of these trade agreements that were being established. And so something like a local milk industry, um, you know, there'd be fa- local farmers that, that, and there was a viable industry that could serve the population of Jamaica. But what ended up happening was that, you know, processed milk made in the United States and you know, made in other countries is much cheaper for Jamaican people. So an organization like the World Trade Organization comes along and says, well, you know, if there's any specific kind of tariff that would prevent the sale of this imitation milk in in the country of Jamaica, it needs to be lifted. And in some cases, it would need to be lifted as part of an agreement to obtain some kind of IMF or World Bank loan. So you see the organizations are working together. And this is an example that you can use in many, many um, all over the developing world of indigenous industries that just couldn't compete on an international scale with products that are produced, especially products that are produced with subsidies like like many of them, their farming subsidies here in the United States. So it became untenable for some of these countries, and it leaves their peasant populations, you know, with with land that they can no longer use. So in any case, this is the kind of stuff that was going on with the World Trade Organization. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today on the show with Heather Gottney. Gottney's an assistant professor of sociology at Fordham, and we're talking about the 1999 WTO protests. Let's get back to that conversation. I asked Gottney to explain to me something about how the whole neoliberal idea, which spawned the policies that people were protesting, came to be such an important one in world finance. Neoliberalism is something that emerges in the 1970s, and it's largely an economic paradigm, but it's really a social and political paradigm as well. And it, it, it has serious social and political consequences. And essentially the reason, let's say, I mean, there are many reasons why it emerged, but one of the reasons is that in the 1970s we're seeing a breakdown of the Keynesian system, which basically comes out of the 19. 19- 30s and the New Deal, and it's a fix to market speculation, right? So there's rampant market speculation and, you know, something fairly similar to what we're seeing now, which is an explosion of this kind of speculation. And it's, you know, affecting the housing market and causing massive unemployment. And basically, it called into question a laissez-faire version of economics, which basically says, you know, that the free market... um, will meet the needs of most people and that we don't need state involvement in the economy. So the idea is to really let the economy run itself and let the market run itself and the state should have minimal involvement. So, of course, this falls apart and in the 1930s, the New Deal is signed and there's heavy state involvement. So there's 
regulations that are being imposed on financial transactions, on things like the housing market. You, you see um, all kinds of, of programs aimed at stimulating job acquisition, social services for housing and health care, et cetera, et cetera. So in the 1970s, there's, there's some infighting in terms of how this Keynesian system is going to work out, um, and this infighting is really among economists. So that's part of the story. But the other part of the story was that there was a, you know, an oil crisis and the world economy started to fall apart. And so there was a lot of space. And there had, of course, been neoliberal think tanks and, and very sophisticated economists who theorized um, laissez-faire economics and who, who certainly weren't impressed by, by Keynesian, Keynesianism at all. And so their think tanks were very much intact. And it seemed, you know, like a viable alternative that there be, you know, a kind of switch into an economic model where the state, you know, back into, you know, a place where the state had minimal involvement because of this disaster. And, of course, that disaster is explained in a hundred different ways um, and, you know, can be blamed on a variety of factors. Um, Here in the United States, Ronald Reagan was involved in Margaret Thatcher in Europe. And both of them were, you know, also interested in this free market kind of model. You know, Reagan's well known for his Reaganomics and trickle down economics. And, you know, the idea is that if we support corporations, that there will be, you know, a lowering of prices for things and an increase, right? There'll be more jobs if if corporations are are, um, flourishing. Around this time, there's a sea change at the World Bank. The World Bank once operated according to an end poverty kind of model and was focused on on supporting these kind of Keynesian economic models in other countries. And the laissez-faire um, model became much more popular, and there was a sea change in these organizations and new personnel. And this is around the time that this kind of ethos of okay, we're going to turn the IMF not only into an entity that grants loans, but it's also going to serve as an ambassador of this model of economics that is, um, you know, about free trade, that's about opening a, a world market um, so that producers have markets that's going to enable people to acquire less expensive labor an internationalization of the labor market. And what's interesting is this is around the time that this whole conversation about globalization, right, starts to open up because the uh, spread of the neoliberal paradigm is really something that isn't, I would say, is enabled by the emergence of a much more international economic system and in specifically in finance um, and the trading of currencies and so on. So what are sort of the, the tenets of neoliberalism? Um, a privatization of public services is one of them. So, you know, where health care or education and even housing to some degree might be provided publicly by a government. Um, one of the a neoliberal paradigm would would see that private industry would be much more effective in providing those services and that competition Right among different companies, let's say, in providing these services would would mean that we would get the best services. It involves, as I mentioned, free trade, which means lowering trade barriers, and it's called trade liberalization, basically. And the idea is that these barriers to trade would be lifted, so that all kinds of products from all over the place, right, would be available to everyone, and that competition for that market would be open. 
you know, so the result is that people would have a greater degree of access to foreign items and imports, but that also corporations would, you know, no markets would be cut off, you know, to corporations. And this would enable them to really internationalize. Another kind of interesting tenet of neoliberalism is a tendency to focus on the individual. It's a very kind of individualist uh, paradigm, and the idea is that the individual is responsible, or uh, let's say responsible for their fate, for their, both their successes and failures, that it's not up to the government or the state to take care of you, that it's up to you to take care of you. And so, of course, around the, you know, the, the 1990s we saw, in 1996 specifically, we got rid of the welfare system in the United States, and that's something largely informed by this ethic of, well, why should the state or why should, you know, we as a society care for, you know, people who are not productive, right? That it's up to the, the individual to take care of themselves and to be productive, responsible participants in a society. And, of course, it translates into other realms like trade unions. You know, why do we need these large bureaucratic, quote, socialist organizations? You know, this focus on the individual really enables um, or or it, it punishes people who are, you know, that the system perceives as lazy. And it also gets rid of this bureaucratic kind of machinery that protagonists of neoliberalism say was you know, is communist, right, or is, is something that um, you know, takes away people's freedom and individuality and, uh, you know, is, is, is dangerous, right? And so this focus on the individual isn't just, oh, you know, this person's responsible for what they're doing, you know, and responsible for their fate, but it's also about liberty, right? And it's about the idea that, that we treat, you know, the, the kind of unit, right, of analysis or the, the framework is that we look at people as individuals because we're all endowed with these rights. But, of course, that has consequences when that model is applied, you know, in terms of, of a greater society and how we take responsibility for each other. But the theoretical idea is that sort of over time things will even out. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So... Okay, so we know the basics here. It comes to 1999. What is the World Trade Organization meeting to discuss, and why is it so contentious? You know, basically what they're dealing with is, I mean, NAFTA was passed, right, not not long before this meeting. And so there's a, a great deal. First of all, they're, they're trying to, to conceive of how to get... Um, how to integrate Canada into this NAFTA, and some people, they were calling it CAFTA at the time, um, in this model or, or this opening up of trade agreements. Of course, there were immigration issues. There were labor issues. And, of course, another issue was the ways in which these organizations really um, undercutted the ability for farmers, in, in specifically in Mexico, because they were very vocal for them to be able to engage in any kind of production and make a living. So these were some of the things that influenced the protesters to attend the WTO. And then I think it was more largely, more you know, the, the bigger issue that was about power, right? And this was articulated by the activists as such, right? It's not a, an academic coming along and saying, oh, it's about power, right? It, was, it really was articulated in terms of these organizations take power away from everyday people. They take away their ability to d decide about their lives. They see these organizations as anti-democratic, 
there's an idea that, you know, as individuals, we have sovereignty or self-determination to some degree. And what these organizations have done on this grand scale has trumped the sovereignty of peasant populations, for example. And so young anarchist kids are saying, well, I feel that, too, in my privileged life. I feel like my power has been taken away, too. And so in some ways, you know, it was very serious you know, at the level of trade, but then it was also about youth culture and about and about young people. And, you know, historically, those are the movements, these, you know, that, that drove the 1960s and the Vietnam movement and so on. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, Opera for Dummies. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We're talking on Fordham Conversations this morning with sociologist Heather Gottney about the WTO protests of 1999, the social movements surrounding them, and their relationship to what's going on today. Let's hear the rest of that conversation. How did the WTO conference come to be such a, a central flashpoint of all of this activity? I would say that it that it wasn't that the WTO, as I said, was really an extension of the IMF. And it was really the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, um, and at, which was at the time the G7. All of these organizations started to become kind of the poster children for these broad issues, like imperialism, right, or um, inequality, environmental degradation, right? They became the focus. So all of these different groups were sort of, I would say, I don't want to say ineffective, but they weren't making a big splash, especially internationally, dealing with their local issues. But everyone in some way could find something wrong with the WTO, even if it was, right, the upper middle class anarchist kid in Eugene, Oregon. And so it was, I think that was the big deal, about it was that it there was something for in it for everyone. Okay, so all this stuff happened in 1999. And for a couple of years after that, there were these sort of periodic moments of protest, like at the G8 summit in 2001. Mm-hmm. But overall, after that, this movement seemed to just sort of dissipate somewhat, or at least drop out of the public eye. What happened? Well, I would say that, um, that it dissipated, but it turned into something else. Um, in 2001 in Genoa, a protester was shot. There was a lot of violence in Genoa. People were brutalized. There was, um, you know, it became really an international issue because people were coming from all over the place, especially all over Europe. And um, and there were instances of very extreme police brutality, and people were seriously injured. But the most serious was um, a, a young boy named uh, Carlos Giuliani was um, was shot and killed in, uh, during the protest. And, um, and so after that protest, there was a, a, a lot of discussion internationally about should our, our, uh, protests be so confrontational and this is becoming a dangerous thing and people are getting killed and maybe there's a better way of handling this. Also, you know, there's the issue of, of September 11th and the increased amount of security, um, and, and, you know, the desire for the left not to alienate a, a large number of people by 
you know, engaging these kind of protests where they're where they're really destroying cities and you know, engaging a, a police contestation at this time. I would say these are the two main factors that led to the movement to sort of step away and say, what are we doing? And, you know, not long after the United States invade, invaded Afghanistan, and a lot of the people in the movement saw that as a, as a real focus. We're going to step away from protesting at the World Bank and WTO and G8, and we're going to focus on creating an anti-war kind of protest situation but it was a, a very small number of people because the left was split over Afghanistan. There were a lot of people that felt like the United States needed to engage in some kind of revenge. And then there were a lot of people who, who didn't, right, who took a more, um, I don't want to say pacifist, but peace orientation. With the Iraq War, that all changed, right? The Iraq War attracted a very large number of people. And I would go so far as to say that probably all those people in the streets of Seattle were at subsequent anti-war demonstrations. Um, and, of course, you had the largest anti-war demonstration in the world on February 16, 2003, I think it was. And so I would say the most a globalization movement protest could attract was 200 to 250,000. But the anti-war demonstrations were attracting people in the millions, um, even here in New York. And so... I really think that the that the movement shifted its focus into the war issue, and I honestly think that it's going to reshift back once the war ends. Since 2001, since mm -hmm. the sort of agitation against um, neoliberalism sort of took a backseat a little bit, what is the state of global affairs in terms of neoliberalism today? I would say that neoliberalism and and. I'm sure every person on the left would say this as well, is in crisis, right? And maybe that's a wishful thinking. But I think that, you know, this bailout situation in the United States has really hit a, a, a massive number of people and really called into question whether this kind of anti-regulatory uh, methodology is really working, the main focus of the conversation around the economy is we need more regulation. We need more regulation. And neoliberalism is, you know, all about deregulation. I also think that there's a great deal of suspicion now regarding people in the financial industries and in, I would say, in powerful, you know, corporate positions. I think there's an, a, a, a great deal of um, questioning going on. And I think people are, are shifting the blame. They're not only looking at this, you know, at AIG or, you know, any an individual corporation or Fannie Mae as being the culprit. I think people are thinking at a level, uh, at a more systemic level of maybe we do need the government to be a little bit more involved in the affairs of the economy. And maybe we can't just trust the free market to achieve this. I think the issue of... Uh, you know, social services is going to become a major problem. I mean, the, there's been a lot of batting around of how to deal with the health care problems in the United States. And the privatization, the utter privatization of the healthcare industry just doesn't work. It hasn't reached a large enough number of people. And I can see, you know, those or we can see those rattlings happening at, you know, at the popular level you know, among, you know, very mainstream politicians. And so the idea of having universal health care doesn't seem so crazy anymore. The housing issue is obviously, a, in, we're in a dire situation. I think that the paradigm itself is being called into question, but I think that the mess that it's going to leave 
it's going to drag on for quite some time. You know, in terms of political solutions, you know, what would a globalization movement say, you know, at a time like this? I think that a movement like that is going to be focused very much on what's happening with everyday people. I don't think that the movement is placing its hopes in Obama, from what I understand. I think some of the the moves that he's made in terms of his his economic advisors and his talk about uh, focusing again, the war effort in Afghanistan is troubling for a lot of people. And so I don't see him as the answer to, to what the movement was complaining about. But I do see his administration as being as potentially opening up some more space for these movements to to come back and to focus their efforts um, very particularly on issues like housing and on issues like social, you know, social welfare kind of issues and away from these sort of grand protests at the WTO and IMF and so on. Um, I do think that's where where the movement's heading. And so it's going to be much more localized movements. Well, Heather Gottney is an assistant professor of sociology at Fordham. Heather, thanks so much. Thank you. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. You can hear Fordham Conversations as a podcast or in our archives, both at wfuv.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.